Bernice Bobs Her Hair, Sections 4 through 6. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 222. Are we there yet? This episode of Craft Lit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can see more from the Knitting Out Loud catalog by visiting www.knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out all of the latest Knit Circus by visiting www.knitcircus.com. Hello, it has been a week. Are we there yet? Has school started? Please, please, Lord, let it start soon. Somewhere there must be a specific prayer for mothers at the end of the summer. Because as much as I love the boys, and you know I must, because I traveled across the country with them, I am so done. I am so done with this summer. We went and visited the school today. That was really nice. Uh, teachers look fine. Everything looks fine. We had to stand in ridiculously long lines to get a form that I could have filled out on the internet. But aside from things like that, it was really good. And I don't have a whole lot of time because the boys are actually downstairs outside the door singing loudly enough that I'm afraid it is going to get picked up on the mic. Not that it's a bad thing. They sing very nicely. But just just that I asked them to be quiet and they're singing at the top of their lungs. So, I'm done. Uh, not a whole lot to report. However, one thing, if you follow my Twitter or Facebook feed, you may have seen me say during the earthquake we had here in Virginia that as soon as I was sure that it was an earthquake, I ran outside. Now, Renee wanted me to make sure everybody knows that you're not supposed to do that. It's true. Uh, I, I've, I've posted the link that she provided me with, and, and I wrote back to her and said, had my children not been outside, and, and I was worried you know, that they were terrified, had they not been outside, I wouldn't have run outside either. But I, I did know where I was running, and I did know the lack of obstacle course that I was running into. But no question, don't try that at home. <laughs> ever in an earthquake. And I have linked to the very useful uh, little what to do in an earthquake. And even if you don't live in Osei, California, if you live on mm, the East Coast and think you will never get hit by an earthquake, perhaps it might be not such a bad idea to go to craftlet.com and download the PDF that, uh, that Renee provided us with. Because as I have learned, bedrock which is what the eastern seaboard sits on top of, conducts the shakingness pretty darn well. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post that explained that in California, you know, you, you can be relatively close to an earthquake fault line. And if you're a couple of other fault lines away, you won't feel it because the fault line allows the energy to be distributed, while the east coast bedrock does not. Therefore, we had an earthquake in southern Virginia, and it was felt as far north as Toronto, Canada. 
It's pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, that is wild. I love science like that. Um, let's see. Along with science, there are a bunch of nifty links up on the website that I didn't tell you about last week. And so I've just combined, because the short story is only two episodes long, I combined the Fitzgerald show notes into one page. So uh, Renee's link to the earthquake safety stuff is at the bottom of episode 221, Bob, 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 and along. If you scroll down, you'll get to links for today. And I do apologize with how long it's taken me to get this one out. We've had family this last week before school starts, and I started recording on Thursday, and it is now Sunday. And I don't even know if I'm going to finish it today, because the kids are home and life is crazy. But, cool little linky things for you. Homemade Milano cookies? Love that. McSweeney's Huck Finn link? Love it. Clara Castillar's uh, video on Shepherdstown? Love that. Nice little review of the sock book on that my finished socks are on the front cover. I thought it was very nice. A really cool Kickstarter book idea that Becky Miller sent in. If you haven't seen this uh, Kickstarter thing, you should take a look at it. It's very, very cool. And it's a neat way to be able to support people who otherwise wouldn't be doing the cool things that they're doing because nobody has the money right now to do anything. Uh, there's a lot of artwork and photographs and pictures. There's even a picture of Hemingway and Fitzgerald that I found uh, of them together somewhere in Europe. And then there's Craftlet Live this coming weekend. The Knitathon in New York City. Tickets are on sale. The Facebook page has a link. I have links everywhere. I'll put links in the show notes. If you are able to come, please go ahead and get your ticket. That way we know how much food to have. You understand the food thing is quite important. And Erin uh, Ziegler of Chopbard Podcast will be there with Kimberly Tuttle, who is his Lady Macbeth. And uh, I think she's done some other voices for him in the past. But they are going to come and they are doing variations on Taming of a Shrew. Because as we had been talking about Shrew with uh, Woman in White, it occurred to me that this would be an awesome opportunity for people to come and get to hear Shakespeare live. How cool is that? And then have an opportunity to discuss the variations on the end of Shrew. Because there are so many ways that it can be done badly. And Aaron Ziegler has figured out the way it can be done well. And I'm very excited to be able to host this. I think he's going to record the audio too. So if you can't make it, you know, we, we will try and, and make it possible for you to still enjoy some of the things that we're able to do live. And again, if you have a local yarn store or a venue in your town where you think they would like to do this kind of an event, you know, giving, giving an opportunity to local artists and musicians to, to come and, and participate and give us knitters something to listen to, while we knit or um, something like that, uh, give me a call or drop me a line, heather at craftlit.com and let's see what we can come up with because I really think this is going to be a lot of fun. We've been toying with the Dallas idea, but I need to know uh, a store that would be amenable to having us all descend on them. <laughs> have a winner for the August incentive, Jennifer in Florida. She was picked out of all of the people who donated to Craftlet during the month of August, and she is getting her own copy of The Secret Language of Knitters, The Hilarious Guide 
The Language of Knitters by Barry, Mary Beth Temple, read by the author, provided by Knitting Out Loud audiobooks. So that was very exciting. And she just squealed with glee, you know, via email when I told her that she'd won. So that was fun, too. Just a couple other things, and then we're on to Bernice. Um, I did want to, I'm going to say this more than once, which is because I'm very serious about it. I know that there are Craftlet listeners who use the podcast for their homeschooling children, their high school students, some of the stories for their junior high students, and some for even younger. I want to put it into your head that Dracula is not a children's book. It is not the Bela Lugosi film. It's not entirely, I mean, plot-wise, it's pretty close, but it is not the Coppola film. And it's been a long time since I've seen the Frank Langella version. I'm going to watch it again, just so I'll be able to give you a 411 on it. But Dracula's not a kid's book. Even, even by today's standards, with the horror that we witness in movies all the time, and by horror, I mean the, the high body count movies, where you know, you just kind of see carnage or really horrifying suspense or children being hurt. You know, all of all of those things we kind of get inured to. And Dracula's kind of the root of that tree. And I'm I'm not going to tell you that it is a terrifying book that's going to keep you up at night. There is imagery in it that is disturbing. There are words in it that are disturbing, and there are scenes in it that are disturbing. Now, will it keep you up at night? No, I don't think so. It'll certainly make you think, because it is not a Victorian book. This is 1890. This is, we're, we're walking into a, a turn-of-the-century book. There are photographs and trains and all sorts of things that, um, that you, you may not uh, have in your mind when you think about a, a book that we think happens in Transylvania. It's kind of like a tale of two cities, actually, in that it, it has more than one location. But if you have, I, I really think, if you have the opportunity to listen to this with your child, I would do a preemptive listen of the chapter section. And you know, in the, in the show notes, I always say book talk begins at such and such time. So you can kind of skip all the crafty talk or all the personal talk and get straight to the book. And I think it's probably not a bad idea while we listen to Dracula that you do that. This has been on my mind for weeks now. And I, I wanted to say it before we finish Bernice, and I'm going to say it again before we actually start Dracula, because, uh, because I think it's important. You know, kids, kids today grow up awfully fast and uh, they don't always need to do that. And especially when you're talking about really good literature, if the guy's going to set out to disturb you, he's going to probably do a pretty good job of it. So that is just my little cautionary word of warning. I'm, I'm almost done listening to the whole book, and I had worried that there were going to be sections of it that I actually would have to put an explicit label on the the podcast, which I know uh, defeats some of your um, podcast aggregators. You know, it, it warns them, it sends up a, a red flag, and then it, your aggregator won't download it. Now that I'm, I'm very close to the end of the book again, I do not think I'm going to have to do that. There actually isn't anything that I, I think would explicitize a podcast. But um, 
but I did want to give you guys a heads up. All right, enough of that fun stuff. Bernice, Bernice, who will be bobbing her hair. Now, if you recall, Bernice fell over when she heard that her cousin is expecting her to bob her hair. And well, she should, because as Heidi said in an email to me this week, she does have pictures of her great aunts who were all sitting around looking kind of sullen in really bad bowl haircuts. You know, just a barber really did them a disservice and just lopped their hair off. There was no shaping. There was no, you know, no spit curls, nothing to make it look at all remotely attractive. And Fitzgerald is definitely talking about that kind of bob when he is talking about Bernice and her hair bobbing. All that being said, there are a couple of things that I need to make apologies for. And I've, I've been toying with the idea of actually going back and fixing the audio on one of them because it's such an appalling mistake. I am forever conflating words that start with the same letter. I don't, you know, when my dyslexia, because <laughs> everybody's got something, right? My dyslexia comes this way. I don't, I don't reverse words. I don't read backwards or any of that stuff. But Evelyn Waugh and Edith Wharton, I conflate those two almost every time I talk about them. And I really just need to remember that I don't keep them straight in my head and probably need to double check anytime I open my mouth with one of their names on it. Uh, Nitty Lynn wrote in, this is her comment on the show notes, just to let you know that Evelyn Waugh didn't write The Age of Innocence, but Edith Wharton did. Evelyn wrote Brideshead Revisited, and he is a he, while Edith Wharton wrote Innocence, and she is a she. And I know that because I love Evelyn Waugh books. He's just so fabulously snarky and dry and wry and... Uh, and Edith Wharton wrote Age of Innocence, and it's really good. And she said, I know, you, I know you know this, but it's just not what you said in the podcast. Innocence is one of my favorite books, so I want those who are curious to read it and have the right author, which would be helpful. Um, and yes, Age of Innocence, fabulous. If you've never listened to it, Brenda Dane did a reading for LibriVox, and it is marvelous, as you can imagine. And Evelyn Waugh, if you have an Audible account, I highly suggest you go and download... Uh, an Evelyn Waugh or two. Or, if you don't have a lot of time, you could just uh, pick up a copy of Decline and Fall, which is a quick read of, of the most horrifyingly dry moments of tragedy stated as though nothing seriously happened. And it's, it, it makes for actually rather a, a funny read because of his extreme extremely dry sense of humor. And I mean dry. I mean Arizona dry. He is really dry. Now, we have three people who wrote in about flappers, which is just awesome. Renee, Renee wrote in, this is Renee who also uh, sent in the PDF for what to do about an earthquake. And she said she went and looked up possible derivations for the word. Now, I'm going to read what she wrote, and this is fascinating to me. The slang word for flapper describing a young woman is sometimes supposed to refer to a young bird flapping its wings while learning to fly. However, it may derive from an earlier use in North England to mean teenage girl, referring to one whose hair is not yet put up and whose plated pigtail flapped on her back, or from an older word meaning prostitute. 
The slang word flap was used for a young prostitute as far back as 1631. By the late 19th century, the word flapper was emerging in England as popular slang both for a very young prostitute and in a more general and less derogatory sense, any lively mid-teenage girl. So that was interesting. Now, uh, Sorsha wrote... That it was a good thing when I said that. It was a good thing that she didn't have a drink in her mouth. She said, I've never thought of much much about this, but have always associated flappers, rightly or wrongly, with the, way they dre- with the way they danced, the Charleston in particular, though I may have compressed about 15 years of social history together here. Tomorrow she'll be grouping punks and new romantics together, which, if you survived the late 70s and early 80s, you'll know would not be a good idea. Without the restrictive corsets and dresses, the dancers are able to flap their arms and legs around. I suppose that ties in with Renee's post about them flapping around like little birds. Then Stephanie wrote, see, and this is why I love Craftlet listeners. You guys are so smart. The comment says, according to Jennifer Rosenberg of About.com, and I've also read this somewhere else, authors such as F. F. Scott Fitzgerald and artists such as John Held Jr. first used the term to the U.S., half redirecting and half creating the image and style of the flapper. Fitzgerald described the ideal flapper as lovely, expensive, and about 19. Held accentuated the flapper image by drawing young girls wearing unbuckled galoshes that would make a flapping noise while walking. Now, that's not the first time that I've heard about the galoshes thing. I find it very strange, though, because all of the flapper images that I had seen before are much closer to the Erte, kind of, you know, the slim, boyish, um, but rather elegant. I put up an example of an Erte piece of art for you. I also put up a piece of Gibson girl art so you can see the kind of hair that, you know, 20 years before would have been on the heads of all the young women. Now, there was another thing that was mentioned in the first episode. It was a throwaway line about Annie Fellows Johnston, and I put a link to her name last week, and I'm going to really draw your attention to it this time, as well as an article on women's hairstyles, which I mentioned last week. Annie Fellows Johnston, I couldn't sleep one night, and so I, what did I do? I did research on Annie Fellows Johnston. She wrote the Little Colonel books, and I don't know if you remember, but young Shirley Temple, this is when she was little Shirley Temple, did a movie called The, the Little Colonel. I think it was called The Little Colonel. Anyway, it was taking one of the Annie Fellows Johnston books and turning it into a movie. It's very interesting because just like um, all of the women regionalist writers that we listened to early on in the podcast, back, back in the 20s, um, when we talk about episodes, you know, 200 podcasts ago, uh, I missed Annie Fellows Johnston, and I'm a little kind of horrified because I actually went back and looked in my textbooks that did women regionalist writers, and they barely mention her. But this woman was a sales powerhouse. She was the the James Patterson or the Daniel Steele of her day, but she was writing these kind of, I don't, uh, it doesn't seem that they were as rags to riches a series of books like the Horatio Alger books, but, but it's kind of closer to Nancy Drew without the mystery. You know, uh, good behavior is rewarded, but the, the, the characters are more interesting than that. They weren't, from what I understand, 
not having read them, just having read a lot one night about them and reviews of them, they actually might be an interesting thing for us to do on the podcast because talk about a time capsule. And she had a fairly interesting life herself. She was she was uh, kind of a little bit like Joe in Little Women. She's a very interesting character. So so the the throwaway line to Annie Fellows Johnston, um, F. Scott knew what he was saying. And that leads me to another thing about F. Scott Fitzgerald for today. In today's episode, the final section of Bernice Bob's Her Hair, you are going to watch Marjorie recreate Bernice in Marjorie's image of the ideal gardenia girl. You know, someone who, who lives fast and dies young and leaves a beautiful corpse. Someone who has a good time and doesn't sweat it. And it's an interesting transformation to watch because, of course, it is not a naturally tenable state for Bernice, but she's game and she tries and she's not stupid and she can figure out how to do this. And she's quite successful. And there's some really lovely comedy. And and our craft listener reader does a marvelous job with this, especially with this section, which is tricky to read out loud. And I will talk more about some of the details at the other side of the listening spectrum when we're done. But I do want you to pay attention not just to what Marjorie is saying and what Bernice does, but I also want you to listen to the men and how the men have reacted to Bernice. You know, standing outside the the powder room and joking that the guy's going to clock her on the head and send her back in when she comes out because she's so bloody boring. Remember all of that. Watch how the men respond to her transformation. And then I'm going to say a couple things about that at the end. But uh, Fitzgerald, genius guy, right? This story was, when he originally wrote it, was 3,000 words longer than it is now. And as a short story, you know, it's, it's a good long short story. But he understood how to cut his own work. And he really kind of starts by throwing everything at the barn door and then seeing what sticks and cutting out everything else. And he does a really good job of it. And his short stories are very, very tightly connected. You know, the, the as I said last week, there is not a word wasted. So, you know, listen to his words because they are all there for a reason. And I will talk to you more about it on the flip side. Enjoy reading our last sections, sections four through six of Bernice Bob's Her Hair by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Part four. On the following Wednesday evening, there was a dinner dance at the country club. When the guests strolled in, Bernice found her place card with a slight feeling of irritation. Though at her right sat G. Reese Stoddard, a most desirable and distinguished young bachelor, the all-important left held only Charlie Paulson. Charlie Paulson lacked height, beauty, and social shrewdness, and in her new enlightenment, Bernice decided that his only qualification to be her partner was that he had never been stuck with her. But this feeling of irritation left with the last of the soup plates, and Marjorie's specific instruction came to her. 
Swallowing her pride, she turned to Charlie Paulson and plunged. Do you think I ought to bob my hair, Mr. Charlie Paulson? Charlie looked up in surprise. Why? Because I'm considering it. It's such a sure and easy way of attracting attention. Charlie smiled pleasantly. He could not know this had been rehearsed. He replied that he didn't know much about bobbed hair, but Bernice was there to tell him. I want to be a society vampire, you see, she announced coolly, and went on to inform him that bobbed hair was the necessary prelude. She added that she wanted to ask his advice because she had heard that he was so critical about girls. Charlie, who knew as much about the psychology of women as he did of the mental states of Buddhist contemplatives, felt vaguely flattered. So I've decided, she considered, her voice rising slightly, that early next week I'm going down to the Sevilla Hotel Barbershop, sit in the first chair and get my hair bobbed. She faltered noticing that the people near her had paused in their conversation and were listening. But after a confused second, Marjorie's coaching told, and she finished her paragraph to the vicinity at large. Of course, I'm charging admission, but if you'll all come down and encourage me, I'll issue passes for the inside seats. There was a ripple of appreciative laughter, and under cover it, G. Reese Stoddard leaned over quickly and said close to her ear, I'll take a box right now. She met his eyes and smiled as if he had said something surprisingly brilliant. Do you believe in bobbed hair? asked G. Reese in the same undertone. I think it's unmoral, affirmed Bernice gravely. But of course, you've either got to amuse people or feed them or shock them. Marjorie had called this from Oscar Wilde. It was greeted with a ripple of laughter from the men and a series of quick, intent looks from the girls. And then, as though she had said nothing of wit or moment, Bernice turned again to Charlie and spoke confidentially in his ear. I want to ask your opinion of several people. I imagine you're a wonderful judge of character. Charlie, thrilled faintly, paid her a subtle compliment by overturning her water. Two hours later, while Warren McIntyre was standing passively in the stag line, abstractly watching the dancers, and wondering whether and with whom Marjorie had disappeared, an unrelated perception began to creep slowly upon him, a perception that Bernice, cousin to Marjorie, had been cut in on several times in the past five minutes. He closed his eyes, opened them, and looked again. Several minutes back she had been dancing with a visiting boy, a matter easily accounted for, a visiting boy would know no better. But now she was dancing with someone else, and there was Charlie Paulson headed for her with enthusiastic determination in his eye. Funny, Charlie seldom danced with more than three girls an evening. Warren was distinctly surprised when, the exchange having been effected, the man relieved proved to be none other than G. Reese Stoddard himself and G. Reese seemed not at all jubilant at being relieved. Next time Bernice danced near, Warren regarded her intently. Yes, she was pretty, distinctly pretty, and tonight her face seemed really vivacious. She had that look that no woman, however histrionically proficient, can successfully counterfeit. She looked as if she were having a good time. He liked the way she had her hair arranged, wondered if it was brilliantine that made it glisten so and that tress was becoming, a dark red that set off her shadowy eyes and high coloring. He remembered that he had thought her pretty when she first came to town, before he had realized that she was dull. Too bad she was dull. Dull girls unbearable. Certainly pretty, though. His thoughts zigzagged back to Marjorie. 
This disappearance would be like other disappearances. When she reappeared, he would demand where she had been, would be told emphatically that it was none of his business. What a pity she was so sure of him. She basked in the knowledge that no other girl in town interested him. She defied him to fall in love with Genevieve or Roberta. Warren sighed. The way to Marjorie's affections was a labyrinth indeed. He looked up. Bernice was again dancing with the visiting boy. Half unconsciously, he took a step out from the stag line in her direction and hesitated. Then he said to himself it was charity. He walked toward her, collided suddenly with G. Reese Stoddard. Pardon me, said Warren, but G. Reese had not stopped to apologize. He had again cut in on a Bernice. That night, at one o'clock, Marjorie, with one hand on the electric light switch in the hall, turned to take a last look at Bernice's sparkling eyes. So it worked? Oh, Marjorie, yes, cried Bernice. I saw you were having a gay time. I did. The only trouble was that about midnight I sort of ran short of talk. I had to repeat myself with different men, of course. I hope they won't compare notes. Men don't, said Marjorie, yawning. And it wouldn't matter if they did. They'd think you were even trickier. She snapped out the light, and as they started up the stairs, Bernice grasped the banister thankfully. For the first time in her life, she had been danced tired. You see, said Marjorie at the top of the stairs, one man sees another man cut in, and he thinks there must be something there. Well, we'll fix up some new stuff tomorrow. Good night. Good night. As Bernice took down her hair, she passed the evening before her in review. She had followed instructions exactly. Even when Charlie Paulson cut in for the eighth time, she had simulated delight and had apparently been both interested and flattered. She had not talked about the weather, or Eau Claire, or automobiles, or her school, but had confined her conversation to me, you, and us. But a few minutes before she fell asleep, a rebellious thought was churning drowsily in her brain. After all, it was she who had done it. Marjorie, to be sure, had given her the conversation, but then Marjorie had got much of her conversation out of things she read. Bernice had bought the red dress, though she never valued it highly before Marjorie dug it out of her trunk, and her own voice had said the words, her own lips had smiled, her own feet had danced. Marjorie was a nice girl. Vain, though. Nice evening. Nice boys. Like Warren. 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 What's his name? Warren. She fell asleep. Part 5 To Bernice, the next week was a revelation. With the feeling that people really enjoyed looking at her and listening to her came the foundation of self-confidence. Of course, there were numerous mistakes at first. She did not know, for instance, that Draycott Deo was studying for the ministry. She was unaware that he had cut in on her because he thought she was a quiet, reserved girl. Had she known these things, she would not have treated him to the line which began, Hello, Shellshock, and continued with the bathtub story. It takes a frightful lot of energy to fix my hair in the summer. There's so much of it. So I always fix it first and powder my face and put on my hat. Then I get into the bathtub and dress afterward. Don't you think that's the best plan? Though Draycott Deo was in the throes of difficulties concerning baptism by immersion, and might possibly have seen a connection, it must be admitted. That he did not. He considered feminine bathing an immoral subject, and gave her some of his ideas on the depravity of modern society. 
But to offset that unfortunate occurrence, Bernice had had several signal successes to her credit. Little Orders Ormond pleaded to offer him a trip to East and elected instead to follow her with a puppy-like devotion, to the amusement of his crowd and to the irritation of G. Bree Stoddard, several of whose afternoon calls Otis completely ruined by the disgusting tenderness of the glances he bent on Bernice. He even told her the story of the two-by-four and the dressing-room to show her how frightfully mistaken he and everyone else had been in their first judgment of her. Bernice laughed off that incident with a slight sinking sensation. Of all Bernice's conversation, perhaps the best known and most universally approved was the line about the bobbing of her hair. Oh, Bernice, when are you going to get the hair bobbed? Day after tomorrow, maybe, she would reply laughing. Will you come and see me? Because I'm counting on you, you know. Will we? You know. But you better hurry up. Bernice, whose tonsorial intentions were strictly dishonorable, would laugh again. Pretty soon now, you'd be surprised. But perhaps the most significant symbol of her success was the gray car of the hypercritical Warren McIntyre, parked daily in front of the Harvey house. At first the parlor maid was distinctly startled when he asked for Bernice instead of Marjorie. After a week of it, she told the cook that Miss Bernice had got a hold of Miss Marjorie's best fella and Miss Bernice had. Perhaps it began with Warren's desire to rouse jealousy in Marjorie. Perhaps it was the familiar, though unrecognized, strain of Marjorie in Bernice's conversation. Perhaps it was both of these, and something of sincere attraction besides. But somehow the collective mind of the younger set knew within a week that Marjorie's most reliable beau had made an amazing face about, and was giving an indisputable rush to Marjorie's guests. The question of the moment was how Marjorie would take it. Warren called Bernice on the phone twice a day, sent her notes, and they were frequently seen together in his roadster, obviously engrossed in one of those tense, significant conversations as to whether or not he was sincere. Marjorie, on being twitted, only laughed. She said she was mighty glad that Warren had at last found someone who appreciated him. So the younger set laughed too, and guessed that Marjorie didn't care, and let it go at that. One afternoon, when there were only three days left of her visit, Bernice was waiting in the hall for Warren, with whom she was going to a bridge party. She was in a rather blissful mood, and when Marjorie, also bound for the party, appeared beside her and began casually to adjust her hat in the mirror, Bernice was utterly unprepared for anything in the nature of a clash. Marjorie did her work very coldly and succinctly in three sentences. "'You may as well get Warren out of your head,' she said coldly. What? Bernice was utterly astounded. You may as well stop making a fool of yourself over Warren McIntyre. He doesn't care a snap of his fingers about you. For a tense moment they regarded each other, Marjorie scornful, aloof. Bernice astounded, half angry, half afraid. Then two cars drew up in front of the house, and there was a riotous honking. Both of them gasped faintly, turned, and side by side hurried out. All through the bridge party, Bernice strove in vain to master a rising uneasiness. She had offended Marjorie, the Sphinx of Sphinxes. With the most wholesome and innocent intentions in the world, she had stolen Marjorie's property. She felt suddenly and horribly guilty. After the bridge game, when they sat in an informal circle and the conversation became general, the storm gradually broke. Little Otis Ormond inadvertently precipitated it. "'When you going back to kindergarten, Otis?' someone had asked. 
Me? Dave Bernice gets her hair bobbed. Then your education's over, said Marjorie quickly. That's only a bluff of hers. I should think you'd have realized. Is that a fact? demanded Otis, giving Bernice a reproachful glance. Bernice's ears burned as she tried to think up an effectual comeback. In the face of this direct attack, her imagination was paralyzed. There's a lot of bluffs in the world, continued Marjorie quite pleasantly. I should think you'd be young enough to know that, Otis. Well, said Otis, maybe so, but gee, with a line like Bernice's. Really, yawned Marjorie. What's her latest bon mot? No one seemed to know. In fact, Bernice, having trifled with her muse's bow, had said nothing memorable of late. Was that really a line? asked Roberta curiously. Bernice hesitated. She felt that wit in some form was demanded of her, but under her cousin's suddenly frigid eyes, she was completely incapacitated. I don't know, she stalled. Splush, said Marjorie. Admit it. Bernice saw that Warren's eyes had left a ukulele he'd been tinkering with and were fixed on her questioningly. Oh, I don't know, she repeated steadily. Her cheeks were glowing. Splush, remarked Marjorie again. Come through, Bernice, urged Otis. Tell her where to get off. Bernice looked round again. She seemed unable to get away from Warren's eyes. I like bobbed hair, she said hurriedly, as if he had asked her a question. And I intend to bob mine. When? demanded Marjorie. Any time. No time like the present, suggested Roberta. Otis jumped to his feet. Good stuff, he cried. We'll have a summer bobbing party. Sevilla Hotel Barbershop, I think you said. In an instant, all were on their feet. Bernice's heart throbbed violently. What? She gasped. Out of the group came Marjorie's voice, very clear and contemptuous. Don't worry, she'll back out. Come on, Bernice, cried Otis, starting toward the door. Four eyes, Warren's and Marjorie's, stared at her, challenged her defied her. For another second, she wavered wildly. All right, she said swiftly. I don't care if I do. An eternity of minutes later, riding downtown through the late afternoon beside Warren, the others following in Roberta's car close behind, Bernice had all the sensations of Marie Antoinette bound for the guillotine in a tumbrel. Vaguely, she wondered why she did not cry out that it was all a mistake. It was all she could do to keep from clutching her hair with both hands to protect it from the suddenly hostile world. Yet she did neither. Even the thought of her mother was no deterrent now. This was the test supreme of her sportsmanship, her right to walk unchallenged in the starry heaven of popular girls. Warren was moodily silent, and when they came to the hotel he drew up at the curb and nodded to Bernice to proceed him out. Roberta's car emptied a laughing crowd into the shop, which presented two bold plate-glass windows to the street. Bernice stood on the curb and looked at the sign, Sevier Barbershop. It was a guillotine indeed, and the hangman was the first barber who, attired in a white coat and smoking a cigarette, leaned nonchalantly against the first chair. He must have heard of her. He must have been waiting all week, smoking eternal cigarettes beside that portentous, too often mentioned first chair. Would they blindfold her? No, but they would tie a white cloth round her neck lest any of her blood, nonsense, hair, should get on her clothes. All right, Bernice, said Warren quickly. With her chin in the air, she crossed the sidewalk, 
pushed open the swinging screen door, and giving not a glance to the uproarious, riotous row that occupied the waiting bench, went up to the fat barber. I want you to bob my hair. The first barber's mouth slid somewhat open. His cigarette dropped to the floor. Huh? My hair. Bob it. Refusing further preliminaries, Bernice took her seat on high. A man in the chair next to her turned on his side and gave her a glance, half lather, half amazement. One barber started and spoiled little Willie Schooneman's monthly haircut. Mr. O'Reilly in the last chair grunted and swore musically in ancient Gaelic as a razor bit into his cheek. Two bootblacks became wadded and rushed for her feet. No, Bernice didn't care for a shine. Outside, a passerby stopped and stared. A couple joined him. Half a dozen small boys' noses sprang into life, flattened against the glass, and snatches of conversation borne on the summer breeze drifted in through the screen door. Look at a long hair on a kid. Where'd you get at stuff? That's a bearded lady he just finished shaving. But Bernice saw nothing, heard nothing. Her only living sense told her that this man in the white coat had removed one tortoiseshell comb and then another that his fingers were fumbling clumsily with unfamiliar hairpins, that this hair, this wonderful hair of hers, was going. She would never again feel its long voluptuous pull as it hung in a dark brown glory down her back. For a second she was near breaking down, and then the picture before her swam mechanically into her vision, Marjorie's mouth curling in a faint ironic smile as if to say, Give up and get down. You tried to buck me and I called your bluff. You see, you haven't got a prayer. And some last energy rose up in Bernice, for she clenched her hands under the white cloth, and there was a curious narrowing of her eyes that Marjorie remarked on to someone long afterward. Twenty minutes later, the barber swung her around to face the mirror, and she flinched at the full extent of the damage that had been wrought. Her hair was not curls, and now it lay in lank, lifeless blocks on both sides of her suddenly pale face. It was ugly as sin as she known it would be ugly as sin. Her face's chief charm had been a Madonna-like simplicity. Now that was gone and she was, well, frightfully mediocre. Not stagey, only ridiculous, like a Greenwich villager who had left her spectacles at home. As she climbed down from the chair, she tried to smile, failed miserably. She saw two of the girls exchange glances, noticed Marjorie's mouth curved in attenuated mockery and that Warren's eyes were suddenly very cold. You see? Her words fell into an awkward pause. I've done it. Yes, you've done it, admitted Warren. Do you like it? There was a half-hearted, sure, from two or three voices, another awkward pause, and then Marjorie turned swiftly and with serpent-like intensity to Warren. "'Would you mind running me down to the cleaners?' she asked. "'I've simply got to get a dress there before supper. "'Roberta's driving right home, and she can take the others.' "'Warren stared abstractly at some infinite speck out the window. "'Then, for an instant, his eyes rested coldly on Bernice "'before they turned to Marjorie. "'Be glad to,' he said slowly. "'Part six. Bernice did not fully realize the outrageous trap that had been set for her until she met her aunt's amazed glance just before dinner. Why, Bernice! I've bobbed it, Aunt Josephine. Why, child! Do you like it? Why, Bernice! 
I suppose I've shocked you. No, but what'll Mrs. Dale think tomorrow night? Bernice, you should have waited until after the Dale's dance. You should have waited if you wanted to do that. It was sudden, Anne Josephine. Anyway, what is it better to Mrs. Dale particularly? My child, cried Mrs. Harvey, in her paper on the foibles of the younger generation that she read in the last meeting of the Thursday Club, she devoted fifteen minutes to Bob Dare. It's her pet abomination, and the dance is for you and Marjorie. I'm sorry. Oh, Bernice, what'll your mother say? She'll think I let you do it. I'm sorry. Dinner was an agony. She had made a hasty attempt with a curling iron and burnt her finger and much hair. She could see that her aunt was both worried and grieved, and her uncle kept saying, We'll all be darned, over and over in a hurt and faintly hostile tone. And Marjorie sat very quietly, entrenched behind a faint smile, a faintly mocking smile. Somehow she got through the evening. Three boys called, Marjorie disappeared with one of them, and Bernice made a listless, unsuccessful attempt to entertain the two others, sighed thankfully as she climbed the stairs to her room at half-past ten. What a day! When she had undressed for the night, the door opened and Marjorie came in. Bernice, she said, I'm awfully sorry about the Deo dance. I'll give you my word of honor I'd forgotten all about it. It's all right, said Bernice shortly. Standing before the mirror, she passed her comb slowly through her short hair. I'll take you downtown tomorrow, continued Marjorie, and the hairdresser will fix it till you look slick. I didn't imagine you'd go through with it. I'm really mighty sorry. Oh, it's all right. Still, it's your last night, so I suppose it won't matter much. Then Bernice winced as Marjorie tossed her own hair over her shoulders and began to twist it slowly into two long blonde braids, until in her cream-colored negligee she looked like a delicate painting of some Saxon princess. Fascinated, Bernice watched the braids grow. Heavy and luxurious, they were moving under the supple fingers like restive snakes, and to Bernice remained this relic and the curling iron and a tomorrow full of eyes. She could see G. Reese Stoddard, who liked her, assuming his Harvard manner and telling his dinner party that Bernice shouldn't have been allowed to go to the movie so much. She could see Draycott Deo exchanging glances with his mother and then being conscientiously charitable to her. But then perhaps by tomorrow Mrs. Deo would have heard the news, would send round an icy little note requesting that she fail to appear, and behind her back they would all laugh and know that Marjorie had made a fool of her that her chance at beauty had been sacrificed to the jealous whim of a selfish girl. She sat down suddenly before the mirror, biting the inside of her cheek. I like it, she said with an effort. I think it'll be becoming. Marjorie smiled. It looks all right. For heaven's sake, don't let it worry you. I won't. Good night, Bernice. But as the door closed, something snapped within Bernice. She sprang dynamically to her feet, clenching her hands, then swiftly and noiselessly crossed over to her bed and from underneath it dragged out her suitcase. Then she turned to her trunk and quickly dumped in two drawerfuls of lingerie and summer dresses. She moved quietly, but with deadly efficiency, and in three quarters of an hour her trunk was locked and strapped and she was fully dressed in a becoming new traveling suit that Marjorie had helped her pick out. Sitting down at her desk, she wrote a short note to Mrs. Harvey, in which she briefly outlined her reasons for going. She sealed it, addressed it, and laid it on her pillow. 
She glanced at her watch. The train left at one, and she knew that if she walked down to the Marlborough Hotel two blocks away, she could easily get a taxicab. Suddenly she drew in her breath sharply, and an expression flashed into her eyes that a practice character reader might have connected vaguely with the set look she had worn in the barber's chair. Somehow a development of it. It was quite a new look for Bernice, and it carried consequences. She went stealthily to the bureau, picked up an article that lay there, and turning out all the lights stood quietly until her eyes became accustomed to the darkness. Softly, she pushed open the door to Marjorie's room. She heard the quiet, even breathing of an untroubled conscience asleep. She was by the bedside now, very deliberate and calm. She acted swiftly. Bending over, she found one of the braids of Marjorie's hair, followed it up with her hand to the point nearest the head, and then holding it a little slack so the sleeper would feel no pull, she reached down with the shears and severed it. With the pigtail in her hand, she held her breath. Marjorie had muttered something in her sleep. Bernice deftly amputated the other braid, paused an instant, then flitted swiftly and silently back to her own room. Downstairs, she opened the big front door, closed it carefully behind her, and feeling oddly happy and exuberant, stepped off the porch into the moonlight, swinging her heavy grip like a shopping bag. After a minute's brisk walk, she discovered that her left hand still held the two blonde braids. She laughed unexpectedly, had to shut her mouth hard to keep from emitting an absolute peal. She was passing Warren's house now, and on the impulse, she set down her baggage and, swinging the braids like a piece of rope, flung them at the wooden porch where they landed with a slight thud. She laughed again, no longer restraining herself. <laughs> she giggled wildly. Scalp the selfish thing! Then, picking up her suitcase, she set off at a half-run down the moonlit street. Read for Craftlet by Shayla Norton in downtown San Francisco, summer of 2011. I thought Shayla just did a great job with that. It's a very hard story to read out loud and, and make work. So, now, I did want to ask you, did you notice what Fitzgerald did with both the girls and the boys? It's very easy, I think, to look at this story and go, oh, well, Fitzgerald's just pointing out how how, you know, ruthless girls can be with each other or, you know, women are always tearing each other apart. And yeah, that's true. And you can certainly find plenty of examples of this in, in life. But I think Fitzgerald is too great a writer to limit him to merely having written something like that. If you look at how superficial and selfish all of the other people are. It's not just the women preying on each other kind of thing. It's not just Marjorie being cruel to Bernice or, or you know, being, being helpful until she feels like Bernice's tread onto her territory and getting, catching Warren's eye. But the guys are pretty shallow too in the way they, they jockey for position with the different girls and, and what it is that's attracting them to the girls. And of course, all I can think about being an old married woman is how can any of this set you up for a happy marriage? <laughs> the kind of game playing and God, just makes me cross my eyes. But I that's one of the reasons why I love this story because all the way along, you would never in a million years have expected that last scene from Bernice. 
But, you know, the narrowing of her eyes in that barber chair, something clicked. Something clicked and she, she found her spine. And I love, love Fitzgerald's use of the word amputated to describe cutting off Marjorie's braids. He's just such a beautiful writer. And, you know, more and more of his stuff is coming into the public domain, which means more and more of his stuff will be on craft lids, which I'm very excited about. But for now, I will leave you. It'll take me a little while to get Dracula going because there's a lot of background research that I need to do on Bram Stoker and, and the book itself if I am to do this masterpiece justice. And I also wanted to remind you that when we start Dracula, we will also start our first What Would Madame Defarge Knit Knit Along. It'll be for the Wilhelmina Chalette that is uh, done by Chrissy Gardner, who you probably know from her sock knitting, her fabulous sock knitting and fabulous sock knitting books. Uh, she, she didn't want to do another sock, so she did the Wilhelmina Chalette, and it is gorgeous. And uh, I think it's been knit a few times on Ravelry so far, and they're really beautiful. So that is coming up. And then again, September 10th in New York City. If there is even a chance that you can make it, please, please, please follow the links at craftlit.com in the show notes for episode 221 and 222. And, uh, and join me. I know, I actually know some of the people who are coming because I've known them for years. And then I know some of the people coming because I've corresponded with them for years. And then I know some of the people coming because one is my sister and one is my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law, he knows how to knit. My sister's probably going to crochet. But my brother-in-law, he's a knitter. He's German. So he, you know, he learned how to knit in school. Although he's a lefty, so the service he caused his teacher... I tell you. And on that note, I will leave you. I hope you have a great week. I will see you in New York and I will see you back here later, September 2011, as we begin Dracula. And and you'll hear all of my bad Transylvanian accents. <laughs> Dracula. There you go. All right. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And What Would Madame Defarge Knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters, those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. Remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn.